Welcome to The Baton, a John Williams musical journey. Join host Jeff Cummings as he takes you through the career of the illustrious film composer John Williams, starting with his debut in 1959 through more than 100 films in 60 years. In this episode, we hear the music from Catch Me If You Can, made in 2002. Now, here's your host, Jeff Cummings. If David Fincher hadn't been compelled to direct the thriller Panic Room, Steven Spielberg might not have ever taken up the duty to direct Catch Me If You Can, and John Williams might not have given us one of his most exciting contributions to the film music catalog. The history of filmmaking is filled with stories of scripts that are sent to dozens of directors with the hope that one of them latches onto it. This is the case with Catch Me If You Can, which was pitched as a film as soon as the 1980 autobiography by Frank Abagnale Jr. was published. No one really wanted to do the movie then, so it stalled for 20 years. The movie reached David Fincher around 2000, and it appeared that the man behind Alien 3, 7, The Game, and Fight Club was ready to make this true story about a teenager who forges checks and cheats the government, a major airline, and others out of millions of dollars. What would that movie have looked like? Fincher was known for very violent films, and Catch Me If You Can doesn't have bloody fights, acid-dripping aliens, or demented Kevin Spacey anywhere in the script. We should be happy that Fincher decided to do Panic Room, which was more in his wheelhouse, and the script found its way to Spielberg in 2001. Spielberg just wanted to produce it because he wanted to focus on making Minority Report when he finished AI Artificial Intelligence. But other directors dropped out, and Spielberg found himself adding a second film to his directing plate for 2002. The lead actors of the film were also appearing in their second movie of 2002. Leonardo DiCaprio had completed his starring role opposite Daniel Day-Lewis in Martin Scorsese's Gangs of New York a year earlier, but the events of September 11, 2001 delayed release to December 2002, the same week that Catch Me If You Can was released. So you could see DiCaprio played a hardened gangster in 1860s America and a forger in 1960s America in the same week. And I did, and really liked him in both. DiCaprio's solid acting convinced Spielberg to put him opposite Tom Hanks, who was officially now a Steven Spielberg actor, working on his second film with Spielberg after Saving Private Ryan. Hanks also played a gangster in his other film of 2002, starring in Road to Perdition, opposite Paul Newman. Catch Me If You Can would have been a departure for David Fincher, but it was also a departure for Spielberg. There are no explosions, no gunfights, no special effects action scenes in this movie. Using all those criteria, this would be the first Steven Spielberg film to rely solely on character and not eye-popping visuals to tell the story since the Sugarland Express. While it was a new venture for Spielberg, writing the music for Catch Me If You Can would not be a tough task for John Williams. Spielberg and Williams were celebrating their 20th feature film collaboration with this film, and by this time everything was very shorthand. It needed to be that way with this film because Williams was working fast and furious in 2002, with all four of his film scores practically overlapping one another in some way. Williams had to hand off most of his duties for Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets to William Ross to focus on the exciting challenges that he was presented with in Catch Me If You Can. Even with Ross helping him out, Williams didn't have a lot of time to compose the score. 
When Williams's credit appears at the beginning of the film, I would not have been surprised to see Johnny Williams instead of John Williams. Catch Me If You Can allowed the maestro to return to his Johnny Williams humble beginnings when he was writing comedy scores in the 1960s that had a jazz influence on them, inspired by the popular trend of the era. One of Williams's mentors, the Pink Panther composer Henry Mancini, would have been proud to hear Williams's work for Catch Me If You Can. Unfortunately, though, Mancini passed away in 1994. The music score for Catch Me If You Can might have fit nicely in the films How to Steal a Million, Penelope, or A Guide for the Married Man, which Williams did in the 1960s. It feels fun, hip, and emotional, and the score does a lot to help keep the film grounded in its emotional core of a son trying to please his father and an FBI agent who becomes a sort of replacement father figure. In that respect, this story is right up Spielberg's alley, who had been making lots of movies about the father-son dynamic since Jaws and Close Encounters. Williams welcomed the opportunity to flex his jazz writing muscles again with his score. Actually, for me personally, it's a kind of like a perfect regression because I would write some jazz music in the 50s and 60s when I'm very young. So it made a, it made a kind of a loop for me, a regressive loop, if you like. Catch Me If You Can has been a good opportunity for me to revisit some part of myself that's been lying slumbering dormant for a few decades now. Um, I said to the orchestra yesterday, it's a kind of perfect regression, you know, to go back to some of this. But I have enjoyed that part of it very much, I think, in this. For me personally, it's been, been a nice musical trip. We don't have to wait long to hear the jazz swing that Williams applied to this score. Barely 20 seconds into hearing the opening titles, I was hooked by the music and what Williams was telling us would happen in the film. This is also helped by those exciting opening title graphics created by Kunsel Dega, a French-based firm that definitely reached back to the famous James Bond opening graphics of the 1960s. The vibraphone and the marimba, close cousins of the xylophone, begin the opening credits music. I attained a copy of the sheet music for the opening titles, and I discovered something very peculiar. That sound you hear that resembles a sweeping sound is actually members of the orchestra saying, shh. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. I mean, imagine John Williams trying to achieve this sound with an instrument, then giving up and deciding to write shh in the opening fourth and eighth measures as the best solution. And imagine the orchestra members seeing that when reading the sheet music for the first time. I always thought it was a strange instrument making that sound, perhaps done through synthesizers. Even when I saw John Williams conducting this music live at the Hollywood Bowl in 2017, I didn't notice the orchestra members doing this. But I did see them do something else that did not involve them using their instruments, which I will talk about in a few minutes. The music I played would be the first part of what I will call the chase theme, and it's this part that will be heard mostly throughout the film. It's playful, breezy, and a bit juvenile, like the protagonist Frank Abagnale Jr., who is 16 years old when he runs away from home and starts impersonating a Pan Am Airlines pilot and cashing checks with the Pan Am logo. I'll play the second part of the theme now, 
which feels a bit more serious and features a nice saxophone solo. This part of the theme might be for the antagonist, the FBI agent Carl Hanratty, played by Tom Hanks. As the score progresses through the film, you'll see how these two themes work separately and together. That continues to be true through the opening titles. I'll start it from the beginning and play the first 58 seconds. The finger snaps you will hear are performed by the orchestra, giving them more extra duties in the recording sessions than they might be used to. Here comes another big highlight of the opening music. We get a lengthy solo performance on the alto saxophone, adding to the fun and frivolity of the music to follow, before the orchestra returns to add a little intensity in the strings. The first part of the theme comes back again before a nice bridge filled with woodwinds and muted trumpets play to set up a nice conclusion. In a matter of 2 minutes and 46 seconds, John Williams has set up the cat and mouse aspect of the movie perfectly, forecasting that Spielberg is going to give us some comedy, which he hadn't really tried to do since 1941. 
But this movie is not all about a fun chase around the world trying to catch a high school kid who is smarter than the FBI. There's a touching story of a son whose life is torn apart when his parents divorce. That rift begins when Frank Sr. loses the family house over some debts to the government. And that gives us the first musical moment in the actual film. The saxophone and piano perfectly play out the sadness in the scene when the family moves out of the spacious house into a tiny apartment. This theme will be the emotional heart of the score, played to underscore the tragic life of Frank Sr. All but two instances of this theme play when Frank Sr. is mentioned or seen, and it's just another example of Williams' ability to provide such a grounded musical statement to any film. The saxophone player in that performance, and in the music played in the opening credits, is Dan Higgins, who is no stranger to film scores or to working with John Williams. Though his work on Catch Me If You Can would highlight his artistry as a saxophone player, Higgins had performed on five previous Williams scores playing the clarinet. As a member of the Hollywood Studio Orchestra, there is a pretty good chance that Higgins has performed on every score recorded in Hollywood. Catch Me If You Can would pluck him out of the obscurity of the studio orchestra into a leading role as a soloist in the score. And I had the privilege of speaking with Dan Higgins about his work on Catch Me If You Can. All right, Dan Higgins, so great to have you here. Thank you so much for taking the time to join me on the baton. Thank you, Jeff. My pleasure to be here with your audience and talking about all the great music of John Williams. It's, it's a pleasure. So before we start talking about Catch Me If You Can, I think it would be best to talk about the path that you took to becoming a professional musician. So at what age did you decide that you wanted music to be a part of your life? Well, I got a clarinet, say, when I was 12 or 13 and kind of played in the band and really had a lot of fun. Uh, Decided at the end of high school to go to music school and see what that was like. And college, went to a fine college. And um, then it then it started to become a reality that maybe I could make a living playing gigs and and playing jazz and all that kind of stuff. So I took up saxophone in college, flute, and uh, and then from then on just did a myriad of jobs. I came back to L.A. and then there was a big recording community here, 
which takes a while to get into. But once I did, I, I uh, joined that community and most of my work now is, is recording. So you mentioned you started out playing clarinet, you moved to saxophone in college, and then the flute. Are those the only three instruments that you could play well? Yes, and, and their family members each like this piccolos, flutes, bass flutes, and all the different saxophones. Uh, I primarily studied alto saxophone in college, uh, and um, but then now I play a lot of tenor and baritone. And so you, you play all the family members. I did try to play the oboe at one point, and I studied for a few years, and it just seemed like it was too much to take on. I'm also an orchestrator and arranger, so it's like <laughs> I had to draw the line to try to keep some quality, not to get stretched too thin. Right. So, to speak. so you said all these instruments are in the same family, but you know, as someone who's not a professional musician, they still look very different to me. So what are the similarities with something like the clarinet and the saxophone? And, and then also how do they differ? Well, the uh, clarinet and the saxophone both use a mouthpiece and a reed, and that's how the, uh, you get the sound. They finger similar. So you put your fingers down. That's the same patterns. Not exactly, but pretty pretty close. And then you you articulate with your tongue and you form an embouchure. So those relate to each other. So the general, even though a big saxophone and a little, a little clarinet do look different, you're still blowing air in there and um, tonguing your, with, with the same concept and the fingering. So you kind of have an advantage over somebody starting. And then the flute is unique. It fingers similar again. But it's uh, you don't have any reader mouthpiece, of course, so you just have to form it with your embouchure. That's that's the trickier one for us, because that you have to form that. Uh, you make your embouchure just with your lips, and the on a saxophone you can kind of get a sound the first day you bring it home by just honking into it. And the flute <laughs> takes <laughs> some years to to find a, a quality sound. Right. <laughs> so. <laughs> So you talked about how it takes a while for you to get into the business, but you have been really very busy with recording film scores. I, I really had to stop counting when I was looking at your list because it just got so long. Uh, approximately how many film scores have you been a part of? I guess it's probably closing in on 800, which is uh, perhaps a, a nice number for, uh, but there are people with many more here that, that have, uh, that are on every movie. Sometimes by the virtue of me playing saxophone, a lot of scores don't involve saxophone. Um, I do play a lot of scores on the flute and clarinet too, but there is all sorts of competition in that era, area as well here. So yeah, it's getting up, getting up to be around 800, I would say, different That's... composers. And it's really, it's really uh, the process has changed slightly, but it's still movie music. It's quite thrilling. Right. Wow, 800. I just, it's, it seems astounding to think about that, but I guess, you know, it's, it, that would be a lot per year, but, you know, that's what the studio orchestras do is, you know, once one score is done, it's like the next day or even the same day. I've, I've heard stories of uh, a composer um, booking a studio for, you know, 6 a.m. to 10 a.m., and then, you know, the next composer comes in. So the orchestra is pretty much can be playing three scores in a day. Is that right? You can do that. You could be working all day at one one movie, and then they another session in the evening. You go across town to another studio, and you're working on another. When it gets busy, uh, and there's a lot of action, 
and it's coming up to say the summer releases or the Christmas releases. Uh, some of the movies now, like the like the West Side Story, that's a, that's at least it's scheduled for December. So they gets a little bit more intense as it comes up to these these times. And so they, you know, a lot of people want to use the orchestras. And if you're on the main list, you can work on many movies at the same time. It's sure. True. So when you have to do all these scores back to back to back, and obviously the, as you said, the, the pressure is on when the deadlines are approaching. Uh, what is it like to work with these orchestras, particularly when, he, when it comes to getting little time to, to practice the music before recording it? Uh, well, for most of my career, there's, we don't see the music at all. So we just show up. There is no practicing. And uh, we just start recording because everybody reads at, at a very high level. So the first run through of an orchestra cue, at a, you would be, it sounds just like a perfect orchestra. And then we just, then we make slight uh, little changes in it. But you, uh, you practice your craft and you walk in. I kind of think of myself as sort of like a, you know, you, like a hitman, you come in, you have one job to do and you're going to play this part and, and you bring your instruments and you're not sure what they're going to write for you. It could be jazzy, it could be classical, it could be very quiet, it could be loud. And you just uh, have all the experience from other sessions that you go, okay, that's, that's what I'll do. And uh, so it's, uh, it's, there's no rehearsal, so to speak. It's not a concert. So uh, now with the internet and, and more uh, technology, they, they can send out a few days early copies of all the music for you to look through, which is handy because if you might see something on the piccolo that you might want to look at or the bass clarinet or something odd so that you could have a little bit more time so when you get there, you, you, you know you have something to play that might might get you in trouble. Otherwise, we just read the music. It's For me, it's like a concert because I'm hearing this beautiful music all the time. And then you get to see the movie. So you, you kind of, that's a, it's kind of cool when you go to the theater knowing that you worked on the movie. Right. It's like fun. So tell us about your first experience working with John Williams. I did about three or four movies with him. I did a little bit on Schindler's List. That was one, but very little. Or nothing very exposed or soloistic. Right. A little bit of seven years in Tibet. Just in as a color in the orchestra, as a saxophone. I think in Schindler's List, the very beginning, Oscar walks into a nightclub and there's a accordion maybe and an alto sax playing a little music like in the back of the club. And uh, and uh, I was scared because I'm working with John Williams, you know, and uh, and I played and then he made a beautiful comment. He says, Dan, it, it sounds lovely, but could you make it sound more antique? And he was a beautiful word because it was 1938 or something. So it, it was, oh, yes, you're right. I, I'm, it's 2000 here, 1998 something, right? Right. And uh, so I'm going, oh, I, I'm probably sounding a little too modern. So I had to put my, uh, I just uh, changed equip, equipment a little bit, made my read sound a little older and backed away from the microphone and just a little more distant and changed my concept to, and we were fine, but those are the kind of things you you see when you show up. I didn't know what kind of music I was going to play, but like with an accordion, just a little band playing a little song, right? Something very simple. 
So obviously you had known who John Williams was before you started working with him. So how did the experience of working with him on that brief time on Schindler's List and even afterward match the expectations that you had going in? Um, oh, well, you know, you know, it's with John, it's just a wondrous, wondrous moment because uh, music is so, so wonderful. And then the orchestrations are perfect. So as a, as a musician in the orchestra, the part that you're playing it fits it so well that you are able to play nicely. There, it's studied with you know John's past you know experience. So everything is so wonderful. It's like a concert, and and he doesn't uh, he tends to play the whole piece all the way through, as opposed to just trying to get little pieces and assemble later. So it has a very nice feel that everybody plays and you know that when you play is this could be in the movie so everybody's playing their best uh, the orchestra really rises up for him not that they don't play well for other composers but right with him it's a little different so we all are on point everybody's everybody's really playing and then a sort of a magic happens and he waits for that magic and when he captures it it may not be the most perfect uh, performance. There may have been a little mistake or some kind of a pencil drop or some kind of a noise, but he doesn't care. He wants the performance right. and maybe not the perfection, but the perfection is the musical perfection. So it's, it's really, if you have an experience, it's hard to describe, you know? Well, of course you have to be in the room, I guess. But uh, how does, how does John Williams music when you perform it, compare, or how is it actually different from other composers that you've played for? Well, I mean, I mean, every composer has a unique voice, and uh, I guess the craft level of John's music is is a very high level, as it is with other composers, um, and it just seems to fit the movie so well, and and you can't imagine the music. W- done by someone else so when you like jaws or something you just can't imagine another thing there and that's like a great pop solo on a record you you can't imagine another solo you sing along with the improvised solo because it's so perfect and his music is just so detailed and so perfect and he he really has the skill of of matching to picture Sometimes we do concerts where they, he'll describe the scene with no music and they play the scene for the crowd. I don't know if he did it the night you came. And then it's like maybe Raiders of the Lost Ark. And then, then you hear the music with it and you just see how it lifts the scene, which is kind of benign by itself and how it fits. And every writer has their own way of doing that. And, uh, but it just seems like John has a special touch with that, that we, we adore and is usually very few changes. And, um, and usually it's the first time that the music is heard is when we play it. Mm-hmm. It's not all demonstrated. It's not uh, synthesized. It's, it's, it's the concert and the director is there and then it gets, it's, it makes it even better. It's just sort of a, a birth of the music. Right. Cause it seems like I, I go back to that, uh, quote from Amadeus where it's where um, Salieri saying is like some music that's already finished in his head and I think John Williams it's kind of that same way and he just puts it out on paper and miraculously that first performance of it just all works 
Yes, yeah, so I went to one lecture with him and he, he talked about the writing process a bit and he said he writes the end first. And that's the culmination of all the themes. Right. And they're at their most developed state. And then as he backs out, he can say, well, I'll introduce this theme for this character here, but I won't give away the second part of it. So he can, so he doesn't, he has a goal and he gets there first, then he comes back. It's kind of an interesting concept because you would think he would start at the beginning, right. but you write the big final scene and then you have all the material to work for and then you piece it together and then you, you can see the development of his themes throughout there. It's just, it's, it's quite, it's, it's just quite wondrous in it's in that kind of beauty of that. And it's a craft because it's, a, it's different. It's fitting a movie as opposed to a symphony. That's just peace. Right. Well, I think Catch Me If You Can is definitely one of those scores that really feels like it is a symphony that's um, put into a film. Uh, when were you first aware not only of the score being performed by the studio orchestra, but that you were going to get the the distinction of getting a solo part? Well, I guess you could say all the uh, the voodoo aligned in that one because I just got the call and I was just told to go to MGM Studio. Uh, at 10 o'clock and I got a whole week at the studio, alto sax. I didn't know what I was playing. I didn't see any music. I didn't know it featured the saxophone at all. It didn't matter because I show up a lot and it doesn't matter if it's whatever. But it it was, it was probably better because I wasn't scared. I just walked in and I looked at this music and I go, look at all that. And I go, uh, so I'm always there a little early and I practice the part, you know, okay. And then we played it and I go, I'm going to really like this score because it had a jazz tinge to it. And, I, and that's my favorite studio to record in, MGM. It's called Sony now. And, and then I'm just like, this is going to be a nice week. And, uh, and, and Spielberg was walking around with his camera and he seemed to like it. So that all the saxophone ideas got developed. But uh, we just get the call through an answering service. We don't get any heads up. Okay. At least in that era. So you're just walking in blind. Interesting. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. That seems interesting because as a, it seems to me that John Williams would have written this and said, okay, I know there's going to be a saxophone solo. I need Dan Higgins kind of thing. And so he would want to make sure that you're available, but you're basically saying that's not the case. Maybe. Yeah. I mean, he, he may have had a part. It could have been, there's a contractor involved or, um, uh, just everything aligned nicely. Maybe it was just my time. Maybe somebody else was busy. Um, uh, I mean, I was already in town. I'd worked, but I hadn't done, he didn't particularly, I mean, he may have chosen me, but it wasn't like I had to do an interview or an audition or mm-hmm. it could have just, I don't know. In this town, there's a lot of great players. It could have been many people. It just happened to be me. And I was glad it was. And, uh, and, and I'd studied classical music in college, classical saxophone, but I'm a kind of a jazz guy at heart. So this music is between the two. So I was kind of a good selection because I had, they got a, just a jazz guy. It could have been okay. Or if they got a classical saxophone player, it might've been a little stiffer. Right. So the fact that it was a, had some, a musician that kind of understood those two genres of the saxophone made it, Good. I never did anything. I didn't add anything to his parts. I played his parts just the way he wrote them. I mean, I was, uh, it wasn't like, hey, stretch out there or make the, you know, do something wild here. It was not that. He he writes it all out. It's, I don't take credit for one note. 
and I'm just uh, I'm just playing, and that's how he is. He's very detailed. He knew the perfect range of the saxophone. He knew the color. The you know he's written in that genre for years, and it was so it was a pleasure because that could have been if somebody some people just might not have captured it as nicely, and still had the sound of the saxophone, but. Yeah, so that was that's how I got it. I guess it was just my time. Like I said, it was like a the voodoo. The, all the voodoo came in one thing, and I I could drop on my head there, and I walked in, and I go, oh, I like this, <laughs> and it was fun. And you didn't know about the the movie that it was being attached to at all. I don't think I knew. No, I I I don't think I knew that story about Frank. Nail. I didn't think I knew that until I got there and then I and then I did some research you know <laughs> like sometimes we don't we just hear a title because these things are scored way in front so there may not be any press or yeah we don't right. we look at this movie and we go what's this you know and so we then you look it up and you go oh it's coming out in six months so nobody knows about it and you can read a little bit about it I don't like to generally look behind me and look at the big screen to see the movie because I might want to see it in the theater. I don't want to, you know, I just, you know, it's not really my business to look at it, but uh, I don't want anything to be given away. You know, if somebody dies at the end, I'd rather just play and leave. <laughs> well, that's very interesting because, you know, there's a very famous story about Itzhak Perlman getting to look at some of the scenes while he was playing for Schindler's List. And he got very emotional and he said that really affected how he played the violin but and and so that was going to be my question to you is did you get to while you perform get to see the some of the scenes because they really could probably inform you of how you know the person that you're you know this theme may be performed for yes i i did in that case because i i we generally the musicians don't all crowd into the control room after there's like 80 musicians so well, as much as we all like to hear ourselves in a beautiful studio environment, I, I could get in there since I was a soloist. So I would go in and watch the scenes and I watched the opening title, how beautifully crafted that was. Yeah. And then one of the themes in there was the father's theme. And that was the more uh, dramatic ballad, so to speak, theme. And that affected me because I thought when every time that came up, it was sort of the, um, the you know, his father relationship. And so, I could play more mournful in that. But uh, like I said, John writes it all out so beautifully that the interpretation is what you're looking for, but not adding anything. And, and it does help to know what the scene is. It always, usually they just tell you, you know, they'll say, Hey Dan, this is sexy. And I'll go, and then I'll play kind of rough and they go, well, no, no, not a hooker. <laughs> so you know we there's varying terms of everything so if someone says play sad i mean there's just different levels and uh so but i i did get to see some of that part of the movie in the booth at the time but i was really anxious to see it in the theaters when it came out so to see if you know how it all worked and and, and to watch the movie too it looked good
So you talked about how, you know, you kept giving credit to John that, you know, every note was his. And a lot of the discussion after the movie came out and still up to this day, 18 years after the movie was released, is that a lot of your solo performances were improvised because it just sounded that way. So was there instruction from John Williams to say, make it sound improvised? Or is that just the way the notes just played themselves out? I just think that was, well, that, I mean, it, I, I get that, but uh, there's a subtle uh, color in the movie where the vibraphone shadows the saxophone. And uh, the, the great vibrist out here, Alan Estes, he played it. And uh, he plays very softly. And it adds, because vibraphones were sort of hip in the 60s, and, and it, it adds a little shadow to my the point of a saxophone. And so if you listen closely, they go, well, they both can't be improvising together. You know, so <laughs> yeah. there is that element. But uh, no, John's just aware. He was aware of the, he knows the jazz language. So he wrote out what he wanted, and it, and it fit so nicely. I, I never had to change anything to, to make it smoother. But I knew what he wanted. He did want it to be like a jazz combo. Even as jazz players, I would probably play, I play every time I play the piece, I play it slightly different anyway, within those little parameters. It was really fun. I was, I was thrilled when I, when I walked out of there. I, you know, if I could bottle that week, every week in my studio career, <laughs> you'd probably die of a, of a permanent smile. Yeah, if only. It's like you said, it was, it was a voodoo experience. You just, everything aligned for you. I, and this is something I, I actually should have asked you earlier, but how many times have you kind of been in that soloist position on a film score? Oh, you know, there's, um, yeah, there's been other movies that I've done it in. Uh, Benny and June, uh, I was featured The Soprano. I think the Johnny Depp is in that. And then I did a wonderful score with uh, Randy Newman called Awakenings with right. De Niro and yeah. And, and that features the soprano saxophone and in a classical manner. And that was another one of those ones where I didn't see the music and I didn't know the soprano sax, you can go from Sidney Bechet to Kenny G to anywhere. I just come in with it and it turns out it's classical. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I was, that was, I, that was one of my first movies. I think that was around 1985 or six. And I was very nervous because I was on the spot and I didn't know anybody in the orchestra because these are all symphony studio musicians. And I, I was just getting into it. And so uh, that, that was another one that, that I'm very proud of is, is the awakenings. He used the soprano sax as more of an oboe. Oh, so yeah. it, it, it had to be, uh, one thinks of the soprano sax as just to being a little bit, um, out of tune and just sort of flagrant, and uh, but this was a very controlled thing. But like I said, I had studied classical saxophone, so to play the soprano in that genre was was good. And that was one of my. And that would have been had I not done well on that one, I probably wouldn't 
done too many movies because <laughs> you don't you don't get too many chances. And uh, there was a lot on the line on that one. Right. Yeah. yeah. And of course, everybody can, uh, you know, if you everybody remembers, hey, that Dan Higgins guy, we want to we want to keep him in this orchestra for future well, stuff. Yeah. yeah, you build you build, you know, little stepping stones like that. Maybe I mean, I was doing TV and records and people here, you know, we all counter we all blend together in different environments. So somebody might hear you play something they like on a TV show. Right. So, so how did, how did this uh, experience of being a, a very prominent soloist in Catch Me If You Can help your career, not just as a studio musician, but you know, going out to do uh, concerts and, and other things? Well, that's the thing. We were very, uh, our, our ilk of musicians here in the studio business are, not very well known and um which is fine but i this gave me a little bit more international notoriety i so to speak and emails from nice people and and uh that 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 want to and, and it gave a really nice piece of literature into the saxophone community so for me it was like wow this is i like movies this is what i do for a living and then i get to go out and play that same music in concert well that's a bonus and i get to play with chicago new york philharmonic these are just fine the best of the best and um so it's it was really it was really good that way and it but it gave me a little bit of press not that i care or look for that because that's not what we do as studio players try to make you don't want to, you can't make a career from that in, uh, as a, with a big name because, which is, which is kind of, I like that. I'm not really out to looking to, you know, do things like that, but uh, it really did. It is a nice feeling to know that people might know your name for it. And on the music that's printed for the concerto, it's got my name on it. It's just nice. That'll always be there. So, you know, and then like someone, and then the marriage of something like it's like Perlman and, and having a feature and that's in Catch Me If You Can and other movies, there's not many movies that tend to feature one instrument. So it's a rarity. Uh, so it, it's like, you may only get one chance in 20 years that there's a movie that, I know Branford was featured in Russia House and Soprano. I was over there in the orchestra. I think I was playing clarinet. And yeah, I go. This is this is cool. I mean, he's you know, Branford myself. He's here with us, and and he's playing wonderful soprano. And uh, so we, it, it's like, well, I want to, I want to do that, you know. And so that's a rare chance for a studio musician to kind of get get his name out there. I guess that's a short way to say it. But and, and you also got your name. I mean, it's in the credits. It's in the credits of the movie. As in the credits, you play the saxophone. What did it feel like to see your name? scrolling with all those other names and as a it, as a soloist yeah it is it is nice because one of my good friends is still alive ronnie lang played taxi driver and he lives just up the street and uh-huh. talked very to big the other saxophone and, parts and very big and that was that was his eras that was what ronnie Lang. but it was not in the credits and so he keeps we know but not a lot of people know right. so it's kind of like that what what a nice thing for them to do is put put it me in the credit uh, because uh, I remember Emily Bernstein played on the terminal. I don't think you've done that one yet, but uh, the yeah, terminal, that's coming wonderful, up. Yeah, wonderful clarinet soloist. So she's passed on, and uh, but uh, she had that moment, the same moment I had, is that she she got to play 
and I got her name and, and, and then she passed very shortly after. Mm. So, but it was, it's just one of those, uh, yeah, I took my folks to the movie. They, it was Christmas time when it came out. So we all went and we stayed for the credits and I could have the credits roll down there and my mom and dad could see that. It's really, it was kind of cool. And, uh, and it, it sounded good in the movie theater. I go, you know, sometimes you get a movie score and you go, well, I'm playing a solo, but I can barely hear the flute back there. They mix everything so softly. And this had moments where I could be heard. So it was, it was nice because you never know until you see the movie how they, how they balance it. Yeah, it's, and John wrote a, uh, in the soundtrack record, he wrote a second movement, which turned out to be the second movement of the piece, Escapades, and he did that separate. So, uh, which is another thing that a lot of people don't do is he wrote an elaborate development of that father's theme just for the soundtrack record only. Right. It's not in the movie. It's in the movie in pieces, but not in that form. So, wow. I mean, that's like, that's like a, you know, Beethoven, you know, he made a whole movement just like that. He said, Oh damn, we're going to do the movement. I went, Oh God, <laughs> I thought I was through with all the notes. And, and that music, that music I saw two days in front. <laughs> it was about a month later we did that date. And I, I, I did get to practice that one. But you talked about Escapades, which is the, the concert version of all the themes that came from Catch Me If You Can. And I got the, the great privilege of seeing you perform that concert suite at the Hollywood Bowl in 2017. It was my first time that I got to see the actual soloist from the actual film score performing parts of the score. It was such a treat. How often do you get to perform Catch Me If You Can in concerts? I've only done it with John, and uh, I've still done it about 10 or 12 times since 2002 or so. I did it in Boston a couple of times, Hollywood Bowl maybe three, four times, Pacific Symphony, a very fine symphony in Orange County here, uh, Chicago. It, it just, uh, just when he was out doing Pops concerts or his music, usually summer, Tanglewood, you know, when it's so hot and you're outside, I come out and... I was like, it's hard to hold the read. I keep the mouthpiece in my mouth. It was so hot that one night. It's just still Boston, you know. Oh, God. Oh, no. Uh, mosquitoes, and I'm out here, and I'm sweating. But it's, it's, it's even, that's just a thrill and a half to play that live because uh, the people seem to really like it because everything else that he's got in there, you know, he has to do Raiders, and he has to do Star Wars, all the great things. And a lot of people don't know so much about this score. And it's a little different. It's a little twist in the program. Yeah, yeah. And and I, it brings exposure to it. I had to. I did it for a gala concert out here. I think that maybe they taped it for PBS. But Itzhak Perlman was there to play, and he was on before me. And I, I, my, I did Catch Me Can afterwards. 
and Dudamel was conducting the LA Phil. And so I came out of my dressing room and it's about maybe 20 minutes before I come on and I see the big, you know, the video crew with backstage with a big monitor. It looks great. I'm going, wow, I'm going to be out there in a minute. And it's like playing Schindler's List. Well, I'm starting to cry. I go, this is bad for me. <laughs> it's just like, I mean, I need to leave because I'm, I, I need to not, I got to focus on my music and I'm just listening to him and he's playing. And it was, you know, I just go, oh, I'm getting out of sorts. Like, you know, my game face is off, you know. So I left and went back to the dressing room and came back out and played. <laughs> but uh, I did hear It's Like Play It live on that same program, which is, which is wonderful. Yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah. Uh, so you're, you're still working, uh, doing a lot of, of film work, even in this uh coronavirus pandemic uh, situation. Uh, actually, before you came to do this interview, you were in the studio doing some some work with Spielberg's next movie, West Side Story. Talk to us about how um, that was involved, because it was really supposed to be with the New York Philharmonic. Yes. Uh, New York Phil was doing all the songs and everything, and, and we were jealous because the original score was done in L.A., and uh, Anyway, I'm happy for the New York musicians and the New York, New York Philharmonic. But uh, so we did, we've been just doing a few days here to finish the movie up uh, because they don't want to fly back there, I suppose, whatever, right. or it's just not safe or whatever. So we're, we're lucky to do it. So I got to play a little bit of the West Side Story music. And, uh, but it was a nice to be involved with, you know, two or three days on that just to, uh, you know, to kind of play that music again. I've done it many times over the last years because of, you know, we kind of been doing a lot of Leonard Bernstein because he turned 100, I think it was last year. So that L.A. filled it, everything he wrote. So, and he wrote for saxophones, which sort of involved me. Yeah. So. Yeah. West Side Story, if I recall, has a lot of good saxophone parts in it. Yeah. It's got the little, I get to play the alto part. You know, the, it's like, you know, it's kind of a nice wink to the era of the 60s. Right. You know, when that, yeah. Cool. So before I let you go, I've asked this of other guests on the podcast that are professional musicians, and I want to ask you as well, which John Williams score would you have liked to have been a part of? Uh, well, I did a little on Star Wars, so I got some of that. Uh, I think... Um, I think I would have liked to have been on Schindler's List. Of course, it didn't wouldn't involve saxophone, but it would have been a, I would play clarinet or something. But be in the orchestra because of the that's just such a great movie and it's so so moving. I, I you know I mean some of the other movies like Raiders are flashy more uh, in um, but then the favorite Private Ryan is also one of my favorite too. But but Schindler's List just because when I listen to it, I'm just transfixed by the music is telling the story maybe maybe more than any other score that i've ever heard right. without that it's it's they're married together just maybe just one notch above you know jaws or something <laughs> you know exactly just in a just a heartfelt way so yeah yeah makes sense well, Dan, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate your insights into your work, not just on Catch Me If You Can, but through your career. And um, it seems like you've had a lot of fun with it. And I'm really glad that you're continuing to do it. And we'll be uh, 
looking for your name in the credits, hopefully sometime in the future. Yeah, and if you come up to Tin Tin, I play the clarinet on that, on the, the jazz part. So be looking forward <laughs> that to that. I can't wait to get to it. <laughs> All righty. Thanks a lot, Jeff, and your fans. Thank you. I want to thank Eduardo Victoria for helping me get in touch with Dan. That was a wonderful conversation. So I've mentioned the chase theme that was introduced in the opening credits and the father's theme. Frank Jr. gets thematic material as well, and it's the polar opposite of the music for his father. Frank Jr.'s music is playful and whimsical. The Celesta gives the music a magical quality as Frank manages to fool just about everyone around him with his charm and skill at forging checks. This theme is introduced in the film when Frank changes the birth date and last name on his ID card, allowing him to cash a big check. It develops throughout a nine-minute montage sequence as he suddenly becomes an employee of Pan Am Airlines. With different music, that montage could have been very heavy, highlighting the fact that Frank is really engaging in a federal crime. But the choice to lighten up the proceedings helps the sequence, and the film as a whole, move effortlessly from one incident to another. There's another pivotal montage later as Frank moves to Atlanta and decides to become a doctor. The ease at which Frank creates a fake diploma from Harvard and gets through a job interview is highlighted by the vibraphone pulsing underneath and his theme played on woodwinds.
The chase theme appears for the first time in the film about 51 minutes in, when Carl closes in on Frank's hotel room in Hollywood. The two parts of the theme weave in and out, suggesting the first time these two are going to meet, which they finally do in a nice scene with Hanks and DiCaprio. It's really too bad the finger snaps from the opening titles don't return here, or anywhere in the score. My favorite rendition of the chase theme in the film score comes when Carl is told that Frank's alias Barry Allen is the alias of the comic book hero The Flash. That's when Carl realizes that Frank is a kid, and that helps him close in on Frank's past. We get both parts of the chase theme, with Dan Higgins and the saxophone making it playful and a bit sinister at the same time. The last time we see Frank Sr. on camera comes in a conversation in a bar where Frank Sr. tells Frank Jr. to keep out running the government. It's a great scene for Christopher Walken, who plays Frank Sr. with a few of the mannerisms that have become a punchline for Walken, but still make it very effective. This is a very short musical cue, just about 15 seconds, but you can't help but feel sorry for Frank Sr. as he seemingly loses his son for good. Williams made an interesting decision to use the father's theme for Frank Jr.'s first day of work at the FBI to catch other forgers. Now, at this point in the film, Frank Sr. has died, so there's really kind of a confusing reason why Frank Sr.'s theme would be used here. 
But Frank Jr.'s theme wouldn't work, and perhaps Williams could have just written non-thematic music to color the scene. But I think using the father's theme sells the way Frank Jr. feels at the moment, a bit depressed at the life he now has to live. The themes for both Franks got elaborate concert suites for placement on the soundtrack album, and both have wonderful highlights. I love the sax solo by Higgins and Frank Jr.'s theme, but also the music immediately following that with the fluttering piano notes and the trumpets playing his theme. Thank you. 
And every time I watch Catch Me If You Can, I feel like two hours and 20 minutes flew by. It's one of Spielberg's best films, and probably one of his most underrated. When you think about the best performances by Tom Hanks and Leonardo DiCaprio, you probably don't count these in the top five. And that's understandable. But without them, this movie falls flat. The two movie stars brought people of all generations to this movie, and it made $164 million in the United States. That's a lot of money for essentially a talking movie, where the most violent thing in the film is the shot of a boy's bloody leg. This movie earned $352 million worldwide, making it the 11th highest grossing 2002 film. One more spot up, and John Williams would have had all four of his scores for 2002 featured in movies, that cracked the top 10 global box office. That is something that he still not has achieved, though getting three in the top 10 for 2002 was a first in his career, as I mentioned in the Chamber of Secrets episode. All of John Williams' hard work in 2002 did not go unrewarded. Though his scores for Attack of the Clones and Chamber of Secrets were not eligible for Oscar nominations due to new rules, he had two scores in the fight with Minority Report and Catch Me If You Can. Not surprisingly, it was Catch Me If You Can score that made the list of the five Oscar nominees for original score. I felt it was a fairly good year for film scores, and the list of nominees, which included Philip Glass's music for The Hours, Elmer Bernstein's work on Far From Heaven, Thomas Newman's music for Road to Perdition, and Elliot Goldenthal's score for Frida, were very strong. I was in love with Newman's work on Road to Perdition, and I wrote a small review of the film for the Albuquerque Tribune that year, saying that his score was perfect. I didn't get to write a review of Catch Me If You Can, but I might have said the same thing for Williams' score. It was the one score that I did not deem to be perfect that would go on to win the Oscar. Frida's score, with his Latin-heavy flavors and the guitar melodies, gave Goldenthal his first Oscar, most likely heavily paid for by Harvey Weinstein's marketing machine at Miramax. Williams would get nominations from the Grammys and the British Academy for the score, losing out those awards as well. Catch Me If You Can became a Broadway musical in 2011, the first time a film featuring a John Williams score was turned into a Broadway musical. I have not seen it, but my understanding is that none of the Williams music was melded into Mark Shaman's score, even though much of the lines from the script are cut and pasted directly into the stage show. So what an end to 2002. And who could blame John Williams for wanting to take some time away from film scoring after a marathon 12 months of work? When 2003 rolled around, Spielberg was trying to figure out what film to direct next, and the next Star Wars movie was still two years away. There's no indication that Williams considered any offers for film work in 2003, but looking at some of the films released that year, very few might have benefited from a John Williams score. Williams always likes to stay busy, so in the time between film scoring assignments, he put pencil to paper for two pieces for the concert hall. Before he could premiere them, Williams was presented with one of the highest honors he could ever receive, the Olympic Order. The Olympic Order is given for, quote, particularly distinguished contributions to the Olympic movement, end quote. 
And of course, the four compositions Williams wrote for four Olympic Games between 1984 and 2002 certainly qualify as distinguished contributions. The announcement of the award didn't tell if Williams received the gold, silver, or bronze Olympic order, but a photo I saw had Williams wearing the award, a necklace with the five Olympic rings, and it looked like gold. And there's no other color that award should be. Williams was asked to write a piece of music to play at the October 2003 opening of the Walt Disney Concert Hall, a massive building in Los Angeles that is now home to the L.A. Philharmonic. The music reflected the majesty of the hall, divided into five sections designed to test the hall's state-of-the-art acoustics. And what I'm about to play is probably my favorite moment of the piece. It sounds very much like a cousin of the music at the end of the Close Encounters of the Third Kind when we see the mothership in all its glory. One month later, Williams was in Chicago for the debut of a horn concerto commissioned by the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, with plenty of solo parts for the French horn performed by Dave Clevenger. In an interview he gave just before the premiere, Clevenger said he had some input as Williams was writing the piece. But it's essentially, it's Williams writing what Clevenger called, quote, his impressions of medieval life, end quote. I'm not sure what to make of that, but the five movements in the piece seem to be five chapters in a story taking place a long time ago in a land not too far away. Here is a part that Clevenger called one of the most challenging he's ever encountered because of the range he's required to play in the movement called The Battle of the Trees.
A reviewer from the Chicago Tribune wrote a strange critique of the performance. Quote, Williams may not be a great conductor, but his beat is clear and he knew what he wanted to elicit from the orchestra. End quote. No matter. Williams closed out 2003 ready to work on his next film, which would take him back to the world of Harry Potter. We'll talk about his musical choices for that movie in the next episode of The Baton. Thank you so much for joining me today. And again, another big thank you to Dan Higgins as my special guest. Until next time, the baton is down. Mm-hmm.